Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's reading comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She, she had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let's pray together. So Jesus, we come this morning with no pretense. We come acknowledging our great need, our weak frame, and our desire to encounter you. Help us. Help us, we cry. We thank you for how you have answered our prayer concerning Chris and his family. We worship you and we give you thanks now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is the greatest barrier to true faith in Jesus? 
What's the greatest barrier to, to believing in Jesus? And so far in Mark's gospel, we've learned that the greatest barrier to true faith in Jesus is not societal standing. We've seen outsiders become insiders and insiders become outsiders. We've seen that the greatest barrier is not even sin. The evil done to us or the evil done against us. We've seen just a few weeks ago or even last week that a legion of demons is really no barrier to faith, at Jesus, to faith in Jesus at all, having been dismissed by a word. What then is the greatest barrier to faith in Jesus, to believing in Jesus? I think Mark 2, verse 17, helps us here. In Mark 2, we encounter the scene of Jesus eating, Mark says, with tax collectors and sinners. And he's doing this to the scorn of the religious leaders. And I think Jesus' answer here, his response to the disdain of these leaders, helps us understand our passage this morning. He says this, and when Jesus heard it, he heard about their scorn. He said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, I ask, what is the greatest barrier to true faith in Jesus? This morning, I want to suggest it's this. It's self-sufficiency. The greatest barrier to true faith in Jesus is self-sufficiency. It's thinking you are well when in fact you are sick. It's thinking you are righteous when in fact you are guilty before a holy God. And this barrier looms large today just as it did in Jesus' day. Our default position, and if you're a parent of a toddler or you've been a parent of a toddler, you know this, is to want to do things on our own, by ourselves. And even after we come to believe in Jesus, the temptation to revert to old patterns of self-sufficiency, to try not to be so desperate anymore, that temptation remains. I don't know about you, but I hate being dependent. I hate being needy. I hate being weak. And that's why I love this story so much. Today we're going to see three things in the text that Cam read for us. First, true desperation. Second, true faith. And then third, true life. And then my prayer is that the story of Jairus, his daughter, and this bleeding woman will press reset for us. See, again, we're asking in this series, who is Jesus? If you've come and you're new this morning, we're asking, who is Jesus? See this with me. Jesus is the one who's come for the sick and the sinner. And if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, that means you. And that means me. Look at, let's look at the story together. First point, true desperation. There are explicitly, it's probably more, but explicitly two very desperate people in our text today. The first is obvious. In Mark 5, 25, we read this about the woman who had had, it says, a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. We'll stop there. The woman in our text this morning is suffering from a menstrual hemorrhage, a condition 
that would have rendered her unclean in the Jewish world. In fact, in verse 29, what we have politely translated in our English versions as disease is actually this, this in the Greek, this kind of graphic expression that connotes not just a physical disease, but, but something that accompanies with it a bunch of shame and stigma. It's bad. It's, it's graphic. It's like a, a whip, a, a tormenting-like affliction. And she's suffered under many physicians. No doubt she has tried many superstitious and strange cures. She's out of money. She's poor. And at the end of it all, it was no better, but rather grew worse. Have you done that before? You've tried to solve a problem, a pressing problem, and you've done all you can, and, and you've, you've exhausted every option, but at the end of it all, you're no better, but you're in fact worse. I've done that. I, I do that. And all these compounding conditions come together, as one commentator writes, to communicate to you and I, to the reader, that clearly the woman's prospects are no better than the dying girl's. Her timeline might be a bit longer, but her prospects are no better. Her situation just as dire, just as desperate. And like the leper we encountered earlier, the woman is perpetually unclean. If she was married, she has since been divorced. If she had friends, they've since left her. For 12 years, the woman's life has been a kind of hell. A kind of hell. The other desperate person in our text, however, is intended to surprise us. To surprise us. Our story began, did you see that in your Bibles, at verse 21, Jesus has crossed the sea once more, coming off the boat. He has frequent flyer miles now on this boat. He's going back and forth and back and forth. And he is back in this largely Jewish territory. And this is made evident because this time he's not greeted by a wild, demon-possessed man, but he's greeted with who? A ruler of the synagogue. Someone who stands up straight. Is respectable. Notice that in contrast to the woman. Did you see this? In contrast to the woman, it seems as if the crowd parts for Jairus, right? The crowd moves to the side. Jairus does not sneak up from behind. He does not need to desperately reach at the back for Jesus' cloak. The crowd parts, and through it walks Jairus, this synagogue ruler. Now, the synagogue ruler was not a trained scribe, not a Pharisee, but was a lay leader in charge of the general oversight of the synagogue, including the doctrine that was being taught there. Jairus is a respectable person with a respectable position. And let's just pause for a second. Because just one chapter earlier in Mark's gospel, Mark's been telling us what happens when certain people receive the word of the gospel. He's given us the image of, of seeds being sown in a field. And he says this. He says in Mark 4.19 that there's a person who having received the word, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now we know this. It's not impossible for the rich and the respected to put their faith in Jesus. But it is hard. And it's hard for precisely the reasons that Jesus tells us in our text. See, riches and respectability, they draw our attention away from our need. They lie to us. They say, we've got this. 
But what Jairus, Jairus does next in our text reminds us otherwise. In this tremendous act of humility, think about this. There's this respected man. And he's in charge of, of overseeing the doctrine in the synagogue. He's a respected man. And here comes Jesus. And Jesus, up until this point, has been opposed to, to the Pharisees, opposed to the teachers. And Jairus prostrates himself before Jesus. Look at verse 23. Just before that. Seeing Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. And what has forced him to his knees? What has forced this man to begging, it says? My little daughter, Jairus says, is at the point of death. Literally, at death's door. Death is, is right there. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And, and immediately, those of us with, with sons and daughters, nieces and nephews, grandsons and granddaughters, we get it. There, there is no amount of money. There is no amount of respectability. When a child is sick or dying, it cuts out our legs, doesn't it? And like the woman with the bleed, Jairus' desperation has brought him to Jesus. And in these two contrasting characters who couldn't be more unalike, we're reminded that the desperate include that the sick and the sinners include both the rich and the poor, both men and women, both the insider and the outsider, both you and me, that we all, all need Jesus. That all of us, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, are among the sick and the sinners for whom Jesus came. And so Kent Hughes, he's a pastor, he says this. He says, despair, and we know this to be true, don't we? Despair is commonly the prelude to grace. But despair on its own won't move us to grace. We all know plenty of despairing people who just stay in despair, make their home in despair. What we've seen time and time again in Mark's gospel is that what moves people from the crowd to Jesus is not only their recognition of their desperate need, but their faith in him that Jesus can do something. So this is our second point, true faith. And as we move to our second point, I want to ask you something. It's rhetorical, so don't, you don't have to shout out. You can if you want, but you don't have to. It's a rhetorical question. Why, why the interruption? Why does Mark begin a story about Jairus, about his dying daughter, and then kind of just gets sidetracked to talk about this woman, and then, and then he comes back to Jairus and, and his daughter. Why, why does he do this? Is it because, you know, Mark, like Faulkner, is kind of like stream of conscious, sort of just writing things down, and he hasn't really edited it, and he's just kind of haphazardly, you know, chronicling these things? I, I don't think so, and, and most scholars don't think so. See, what's happening in our text today, it's really important that we see this, is what uh, scholars call a sandwich technique. It has nothing to do with the literal sandwich. So th there's no sandwiches being given away today. But, but it's this thing where, where the first bit, if you will, and the last bit is explained by the middle bit, like a sandwich. So the bread in our text today, is explained by what happens in between the bread. I, I tried to get a picture to help uh, illuminate this for you, but all I found were like literally pictures of a guy named Mark eating sandwiches. Uh, and so I have no picture for you, and so there's just nothing on there. I just wanted to tell you. 
But this technique, it matters for us. Like, Jake, why are we talking about this? This seems like a Bible college or a seminary piece of information. Why are we talking about this? Here's why it matters. It matters for us today because though Jesus comes to Jairus, sorry, though Jairus comes to Jesus with some measure of faith, right? Look at verse 23. Jairus says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Jesus knows that faith for healing is one thing, right? But faith for a resurrection is another thing, is another kind of faith. And to teach Jairus what true faith looks like inserts this woman, here comes this woman who's going to be a picture for us of true faith of exemplary faith, of faith that you and I can learn from. So what does this faith look like? Well, conveniently, I've got three things to show you, and they all start with D. Ready? First is this. This true faith, this faith that we need to learn from, in this woman is strangely, listen, is strangely a deficient faith. A deficient faith. Well, hold on a second. Didn't you just say this is exemplary faith? Didn't you just say we should learn from this faith? Well, let me explain. The woman has exhausted every option in seeking healing up until this point, right? She's done everything she could. Some of those options, very strange, likely very superstitious. Things like, I don't know, touching a holy object or touching a holy person. And you can just see her thinking, right? She now applies the same thinking she's used so far. She applies it to Jesus. And she says in verse 28, if I touch his garments, just touch his tassels that Jesus would have had on his garments. If I just touch them, I will be made well. Literally, I'll be saved. The woman's faith is deficient. Her theology isn't great. She doesn't know who Jesus really is. She doesn't know what he's going to ask of her in just a moment. She knows very little. What she does know is this. If I can get to Jesus, I'll be saved. I'll be saved. See, whatever true faith is, in the beginning, true faith in Jesus, and and hear this if you're new this morning and new to Jesus and new to the church, but in the beginning, true faith in Jesus cannot mean I have a perfect understanding of who Jesus is. And I have a perfect theology. It can't mean that. Now, does true faith grow in its knowledge and its delight in all of who Jesus is? Of course. But like a child, faith does not come out fully formed, fully developed. And so she touches Jesus. And Mark says this. Look at verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. I don't know how Jesus perceives that, but he's Jesus, so he perceives it. And immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Why doesn't Jesus drop it? I bet this woman wants Jesus to drop it. Just drop it. Thanks for the healing, drop it. Because while the woman, here's why, while the woman wants an experience, she wants a what? Jesus' desire is for an encounter with him, a who. She wants a what, Jesus gives her a who. And the encounter that ensues, though she comes to Jesus in fear and trembling, Mark says, is remarkably tender 
and gracious and kind. Look at it, verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, that's the same word that Jairus used for his little girl. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus gives to the woman much more than what she bargained for. She wants a healing, but listen, Jesus gives her salvation itself. Look at it. On her knees, she tells Jesus the whole truth. She doesn't hold anything back. Does that not sound like repentance to you? And Jesus calls her daughter. He invokes the language of family. He says, your faith has saved you. He sends her on her way, not just physically healed, but he says, in peace. These are loaded words. Salvific words. Welcome to my kingdom kind of words. So beginning faith, see this, by its nature is always deficient, always incomplete. No one, hear me, no one comes to Jesus with perfect theology. No one. No one comes to Jesus having worked through every issue and every challenge that the Bible presents. True faith, maybe this is you this morning, True faith begins from a place of desperation and simply says, I've got to get to Jesus. And so here's the exciting implication. Ready? Here's the exciting implication. If it's your first time hearing about Jesus this morning, you can know him today. Like right now, today. If it's your first time in a church gathering, you can encounter Jesus today. You don't need to do four or five steps to take four or five classes to encounter Jesus. You can come today to know him. That's what we're seeing in our text. True faith is simple. It is born of desperation and looks to Jesus. Second thing, the woman shows faith, uh, faith in the face of delay. So deficiency and now delay. Did you notice that delay is all over our passage this morning? And, and Mark, is, Mark is the gospel writer of like efficiency, Right? He's like, immediately, 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 immediately. And now here it's like, slowing down. It's a bit awkward. For 12 years, this woman has endured this bleed. 12 years. And now, as Jairus' daughter is literally on death's door, the crowd is pressing so tightly to Jesus that one commentator said it's like an ambulance stuck in heavy traffic. Making it worse, not better, worse, is Jesus' persistence to seek out the woman and find her. Where is she? Oh, wait, where is she? She's somewhere around here. Whether it's 12 years or 12 minutes, isn't it true that God's delays in answering our prayers, answering our cries, always feel like agony? Always feel like eternity? Especially, especially when the delay fails to meet our deadline. When God delays so much that we're convinced he no longer even cares about us. That the crisis is now over. The unthinkable has happened. I can't help but think in view of our passage this morning about John 11. In John 11 we find the story of Jesus and Lazarus. If you don't know it, here it is. Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha are good friends with Jesus. 
And on on one occasion, Lazarus has fallen ill. And like with this little girl, he's dying. And as Jesus does with this little girl, Jesus delays his coming to Lazarus. So his sisters, Mary and Martha, on two separate occasions, they essentially ask Jesus the very same thing. They really accuse him of the very same thing. What's the accusation? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you said something similar to Jesus? Had you been here, Jesus, had you intervened, Jesus, had you done something, Jesus, this thing, it would never have happened. Why does Jesus delay? Why does he delay with Jairus and his daughter? Why does he delay for 12 years with the bleeding woman? Why does he delay with Lazarus, with Mary, with Martha? Why does he delay with us? And here's what we have to see. In in John's gospel, it's very clear that Jesus' ultimate reason for his seeming delay is so that, verse 4 of John 11, this illness, however, does not lead to death, but all this is coming out, the, the illness and the eventual death of Lazarus, for the glory of God. So the Son of God may be glorified through it. So for Lazarus, Jesus is delayed so that in raising him from the dead, he would be supremely glorified. And for Jairus, Jesus delays for the very same reason. Like the woman, Jairus came to Jesus asking for one thing, a healing, and ends up getting something altogether more glorious, a resurrection. Ultimately, big picture, God's timing works in such a way as to bring him the most glory. But listen, hear this, he also delays for our good. I read one pastor write this past week. He serves in Toronto saying this, his delay is not a sign of distance, but rather comes from a desire to give us something better than we could ask for. I was, I was talking with a group of friends this past week on Friday morning. We were having coffee. And I made a very, you know, pious-sounding comment like, I'm just ready for Jesus to come back. I'm just ready for him to come back, you know? We were talking about hard things. So I was like, I'm just ready for Jesus to come back and get this over with. I'm ready for him to come back. And that's a very righteous-sounding thing, isn't it, right? And it's a theologically correct statement, isn't it? We should desire the return of Jesus, right? It's all good. But as one of the guys around the table pointed out, is that for for me, this came from a place of not wanting to live in the delay, the, the, the now but not yet, the waiting. And to not live into the delay right now would be to miss what God wants to do in me and through me, and in you and through you. See, we want to skip ahead to the end, not because we're holy or pious, but because we're uncomfortable. And we don't like the way the Lord forms us, the way the Lord shapes us. Do we believe that Jesus knows what we need better than we do? Do we believe that Jesus has his grasp on time more firmly than we do? Then if you believe it, you better believe he's going to use delays, even apparent deaths, to give us what's better. 
Which leads us to the third thing we need to see about this woman's true faith. Third thing. The woman shows faith in the face of death. In the face of death. For most people, there seems to be one sort of insurmountable barrier to faith in Jesus. It's a big one. It's death. It's dying. It's the grave. And we hear it actually in verse 35. When moments after pronouncing salvation over the bleeding woman, we read, And while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Listen, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? In other words, there are some things that Jesus can't do, Jairus. Give up hope. There are some things he can't do. Some things beyond his power, beyond his ability, beyond his capacity. And so Jesus, sensing the sinking faith in Jairus, verse 36 reads, Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. See, Jesus, picture it. Having been interrupted, having been interrupted, is standing right next to the woman. He's standing right next to the woman who's now been welcomed back into society, been saved, been pronounced clean. This woman who was good moments ago as dead. Which means that as he says these things to Jairus, he's not just calling Jairus and you and me to wishful thinking, but he's inviting Jairus to let the miracle he has just accomplished fuel the belief that the same thing could be done for his daughter who is on death's door now has passed into death. He's inviting Jairus to let his past action inform his present faith in the face of the ultimate enemy, death itself. It's an invitation that Jesus has been extending all along. After Jesus calms the storm, do you remember, he asks, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And it's the same invitation he's extending to us today, to you and me right now. When Jesus calmed the storm, see it, he showed that he is Lord over creation. And when Jesus rebuked the legion of demons, he showed that he is Lord over the spirits. And now as Jesus makes his home to, way to the home of Jairus himself, he is about to demonstrate that he is Lord over death itself. And that Jesus is death over Lord, uh, over death is Lord over death itself, there it is, is a huge blow to us who think we're self-sufficient. Because while we can distract ourselves with accomplishments and technology and money and other pleasures to keep our own frailty at bay, there is no distraction from death. Death, one way or another, will, will grab our attention, will grab a hold of us. Death is the ultimate reminder that we are not healthy and righteous, but sick sinners in need of saving. Look with me then at our third and final point. It's true life. True life. Jairus' house is a scene. Professional mourners have arrived, wailing and lamenting in a way that would make many of us Westerners very uncomfortable. I don't know if you've been to a Middle Eastern funeral before. It's very loud and demonstrative. And when Jesus says the girl is sleeping, he's met not with faith, but with laughter. 
with derision. Had to quote James Edwards again, the professional mourners represent the hardcore realists of every age who decide when empirical realities have foreclosed on divine possibilities. So Jesus dismisses these faithless mourners. And we read that in the presence of the father and the mother, in front of Peter, James, and John, that Jesus, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Listen, the resurrection of this little girl is a foretaste, friends. It's a foretaste. It's a little picture of what one day Jesus will say to you and to me. I want to invite us as we close to just imagine this. One day we'll awake from our sleep to the word, Arise, arise. Having fallen asleep in a cold and harsh world, we'll awake to a tender and kind voice. Did you hear it again? Jesus calls her little girl. He has someone bringing her food. Having closed our eyes in a lonely world, we'll awake to behold the face of Jesus in the company of his church. And so here's the lie. This is the lie. Ready? The lie is that true life is found in yourself. And that's a lie. That you can be a better version of yourself through inward exploration and pharmaceutical experimentation. The lie is that you're enough. That's a lie. See, you're enough is a slogan for people who think they are safely on land. You're enough is not for those drowning in a sea, not with those of 12 years of bleeding, and certainly not the slogan for those on death's door. All creation testifies to our need for God. We are born, not from our own initiative, but from the loving intimacy of husband and wife. In the earliest days we are fed, not with food that we've gathered, but at the breast or by the bottle of a nursing mother. We die as those being told where to go and when to eat and what to wear. And even our ecosystems crumble and falter when one vital link, one vital organism is removed. If you are to experience true life in Jesus, friends, it is only through true faith. And true faith begins with true desperation. It begins with saying this morning, I don't know everything, but I need Jesus. It begins with saying, I don't know Jesus' timing, but I know he'll act for his glory and my good. It begins with saying, I might even die. I might even die. But I know death does not have the final word. That one day my Savior will stand over me and say to me, Arise, and in a new body I'll walk, and with unmatched joy we'll feast. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know how each of us came this morning, but you do. You know the heart of each person in this room. 
And I don't know what keeps us from admitting our desperation or coming to you from our desperation. Perhaps it's the opinion of others. Perhaps it's mistaken beliefs that we must be strong enough and good enough in and of ourselves. Or perhaps it's the work of the enemy himself. But I ask Jesus that in your powerful name you would overcome all these obstacles now that we might see our desperation and by your spirit have faith to respond and turn to you in faith. Jesus, this life is too short, too brief for us to just play around. Help us today for those who need it to draw a line in the sand and cry out to you and would you encounter us in power, we pray. It's in your name. Amen.